Did you know the Capital Ideas Podcast now has a new monthly edition hosted by Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin? Through the words and experiences of investment professionals, you'll discover who was their best mentor, what's a mistake they made that changed their approach, and how do they find their next great idea. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. Hi, listeners. Lila here. I am jumping on before we start one last time to remind you to please take our survey. We do this very rarely, and I'm dying to know what you think of our show. This feedback really helps us make a better show. It means a lot to us. Also, if you fill it out, you could win a pair of Bose headphones. It's the Quiet Comfort earbuds. They're really nice. The survey is at ft.com slash weekend survey. That link is in the show notes. And thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. There's a book I recently loved called Tomorrow and Tomorrow and Tomorrow by Gabrielle Zevin. It's the story about two friends, a boy named Sam and a girl named Sadie, who meet as kids and bond over playing video games. When they get older, they reconnect and they build a whole video game empire together. And in turn, we as readers end up going on a 30-year journey with them. Here's how Gabrielle describes it. It's about these two people who make video games together and they're the most important people in each other's lives, but they are not married and they don't have children. All they do is make their art. And it's about, I think, figuring out exactly what that relationship is, you know? And it is also about video games. Um, And the last, I think, 30 years of video game history becoming a sort of shadow history for the last 30 years of just living in America as an artist and a person. Tomorrow and Tomorrow and Tomorrow came out last year, and it was an instant bestseller. First, my friends in publishing started telling me about it, and then my friends outside of publishing started telling me about it. And I get why everyone loves it. It's written for a generation that has always played video games, that remembers Pac-Man and Donkey Kong and Minesweeper. I personally had never considered myself a gamer, But when I started reading this book, I realized that actually, maybe I was. I got these flashbacks of being a kid in a computer lab playing Oregon Trail, this game where you're trying to settle the American West and not die of dysentery. And also memories of entire Sundays going by, and the only thing I had to show for it was building like some epic city in SimCity. The first generation of people to play video games as children were born in the late 1970s and early 1980s. We call them the Oregon Trail generation because they were likely to have played Oregon Trail in a computer lab. At school. In a school somewhere, (laughs) you know. (laughs) And, you know, what was interesting to me was that generation of people was now, which includes myself Mm -hmm. and includes Sam and Sadie, who are the main characters in the book, were now turning into their 40s and 50s. And and I just kind of had the question for myself, like, how was you know, life as it is lived changed by having had video games in your life for um, your whole life. Today, Gabrielle tells me why she decided to write Tomorrow and Tomorrow and Tomorrow and why games are an interesting lens to look at ourselves through. Then I speak with FT contributor Jeff Mache about Rolex watches. There's a Rolex bubble right now and Jeff thinks it's crypto's fault. This is FT Weekend. I'm Lila Raptopoulos.
have to admit that in order to introduce you to Tomorrow and Tomorrow and Tomorrow, I just used a very cheap trick that a lot of journalists and critics have been using too. I lured you in by telling you, don't worry, I don't play video games and I loved the book, so you don't have to either. I've read some online reviews of it, of which there have been many, 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 many online reviews. And almost (laughs) all of them start with, you know, a sort of manifesto about whether one is a gamer or not. Right. (laughs) Um, But I actually also find that to be quite strange. You know, you don't read like all the light we cannot see. And, you know, you're like, hey, I was never in World War II, but, you know. (laughs) The thing is, like most really good literature, Gabrielle's novel is really about people in the same way a book about World War II is about people. Specifically, it's about a pair of friends trying to cope with the hand that life dealt them. And they use video games to do it. When Sam and Sadie meet again as young adults, Sadie's at MIT and Sam's at Harvard. They're smart. They're really smart. But they're struggling. And they reconnect so quickly that they decide to just skip college and make a video game together instead. When the game takes off and makes them famous, that becomes their life working together to make some of the most influential video games in the world. I'd be curious how you would distill why we turn to games and what's unique about them and how they help us. Well, I can talk about the characters in in the book because Mm -hmm. when I started writing them, I asked myself, like, who games and why do they game? You know, and so I knew very clearly why Sam and Sadie both gamed. In the case of Sadie... Her sister almost dies, Mm -hmm. you know, and I think in a way for her, games are a way to um, grapple with mortality. And so I think they become a core part of her, you know, Mm -hmm. and and I think for Sam, um, it's that because he, you know, his mother dies when he's quite young, but it's also because through games, he can have um, a perfect body Mm -hmm. that is perfectly functional. He's a person who is not always that is not always comfortable in his body. And so I thought, you know, that would be a reason to game. That would be a motivating thing. Yeah, yeah. Um, So it's based around this relationship between Sam and Sadie through the course of their lives. So it's sort of this expansive novel about decades together. Like, were you like, I want to write a book about the relationship between these two people and I'll use games Mm -hmm. as a vehicle? Or what, what were you thinking as you were beginning the book? Yeah, I think, you know, there are a lot of ideas and not all of them are worth following. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I had the idea that I wanted to write something about video games. But the fact is, you don't actually have a book until you have some people in it. Mm -hmm. You know, and so for me, it was definitely, I knew this idea, but I didn't have a novel until I had these people. Yeah. What felt good to you about writing them? You know, for me, because I'm not a video game designer, there were ways in which I was able to speak about a lot of the things in the profession that I know, which is novel writing. And a lot of the things I know about my life, like I gave Sam, um, you know, Sam and I share an an ethnic background, for instance, or or things like that. I put it in cities that I, uh, that I had always, that I had lived in, you Mm -hmm. know, and and I wrote a lot of the book during the pandemic and I can see in sort of the descriptions of places, like almost palpable sensuality, because Mm -hmm. I'm so longing for these places that you couldn't like visit anymore. Sam and Sadie care about each other a lot. They also fight a lot. Usually pride gets in the way and they can't admit it. Sometimes they have bad months, even bad years. It's a unique kind of romance. I was really uh, 
moved to see a relationship in the novel between people who were making something together, like the intimacy of being in each other's heads. I often feel that creatively with my team, sort of even making this show, like when you're trying to do something complicated and you can anticipate what the other person's about to say and I'm mad at them about it for a second and then you're over it and you have this shorthand and it's a lot of trust. Did you feel that that was missing from, or were there other pieces of art like that that inspired you? Um, I mean, I looked for them. It's funny because I'm often called upon now to make lists of similar novels, you know, or things <laughs> right. like stories of work, stories of friendship. And it's actually amazing relatively to the like millions of novels we have, um, how few of them are about anything but sort of romantic love. Mm -hmm. You know, I did want to, to depict that because I think we are all kinds of people living all kinds of lives, mm -hmm. you know, and I think there have to be stories about other kinds of things. What appeals to me about Tomorrow and Tomorrow and Tomorrow is that it takes on these very modern questions. Questions like, is the kind of love that counts in our society changing? But also questions like, how do you be a good person today? We're already living half of our lives online, under avatars of ourselves. That version of us is no less us. And our lives are real, they're not games. So how do we show up? I've heard you speak about how the book rests on this tension between the perfect worlds that Sadie and Sam are trying mm -hmm. to build in games and the imperfect world that we live in. And you said in one interview that for you, the big question was, how do we live in the world when sometimes living in the world seems awful? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's a question for me. I think the hardest thing I hold on to as a thinking person yeah. is how to maintain optimism in the face of reality. Mm -hmm. And yet that coexists with the fact that as I've gotten older, I do not find cynicism an interesting quality. You know, mm -hmm. I'm less and less attracted to cynical people and cynical things, you yeah. know, with every, with every year that passes. But yeah, I think that is what the book is about. Uh, and I think, you know, for those of us that are in the arts or, or writers or creative, I think one of the ways you live in the world is, Maybe, you you know, you try to make, you know, art that makes sense of it to some mm -hmm. extent. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I was thinking about sort of like what the existential question or dilemma underlying the novel was and um, and how this title, <laughs> Tomorrow and Tomorrow and Tomorrow, kind of speaks to what it was for me, which is that like in games you exist in a world that has very defined rules. And if you die or if you lose, you can kind of restart and there's always a tomorrow, and there isn't like a long memory. But right. the world is more complicated than that. But also, what you learn from spending 30 years with someone over the course of this book and seeing the depths of their relationships is that, like, it's good to have memory. <laughs> like, actually, there's something sort of like, that was sort of hopeful to me, is that at the end of the day, like, the fact that they couldn't just run away and restart or whatever is actually what gives our lives depth and meaning. Right. I found that hopeful. I think it is hopeful. You know, I think, you know, obviously it, the title comes from one of the bleakest speeches in all of Shakespeare. It's like <laughs> act five Macbeth and nothing good happens in act five of Macbeth. But for me, the more I thought about the idea of tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow, the more I realized it wasn't just games that had infinite restarts, you know, like, yes, we have only finite time. But if you think about it, you take Sam and Sadie across their 30 years and 
every day, like they wake up, they have a chance to do better. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, in terms of the the existential dilemma of, be, of being human is that actually, even though we don't have quite infinite lives, you know, we have a lot of chances, you know. Yeah. And I think some of even Sam and Sadie's conflict comes from the fact that they see each other across time all the time. Like yeah. they see every single bad thing that they've ever done to each other. They exist in kind of like a multiverse of <laughs> human right. experience or something, you know. Gabrielle, my last question is just, you mentioned that even being on social media, even being on Facebook is in a way a game. Um, I'm curious if you have thoughts about all the ways that our world has become gamified. Even on social platforms, getting likes gives us some sort of quantitative value that makes us feel like we're winning something when maybe we're actually kind of winning nothing. No. (laughs) But maybe not. I'm curious what you think. I I think they're bad games, as I said. You know, just we're really, really young when it comes to the internet. We don't think we are, but we are, you know. My first novel published in 2005, which coincidentally is, I think, the first year of YouTube, you know. Yeah. I mean, so we have this idea and then Facebook doesn't show up for like two years after that, you know. And so we have this idea that we've been at this a long time, but we we actually haven't been. And I don't think we've completely figured out the best ways to be people and to utilize these technologies on online, you know. Yeah. So, I mean, my hope is that we find better ways to be online. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think that, uh, you know, as we think about the metaverse and some of these concepts, I don't think that um, being an online citizen requires you to be less moral. I think it requires you to be more so. Mm-hmm. I think online citizenship is going to be deeply challenging and it's not something we really think about. That, in fact, if you are not a good person in a virtual space, you are actually not being a good person. You know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Gabrielle, thank you so much. This was so thought-provoking. Thank you for having me. Do you ever walk past those big jewelry store windows? You know, the ones that sell luxury brands like Harry Winston and Rolex. And imagine buying something... Have you ever gone and just tried stuff on just to see what tens of thousands of dollars feels like on your wrist? The journalist Jeff Mache says that even holding something that expensive can be a very dramatic experience. If you've ever held a Rolex in your hand, it's just, it's, you kind of hear a distant choir. It's like hold, it's like it's like looking at a Ferrari, or a, it's it's heavy. Everything just looks like it would last forever, and they do. Jeff is talking to me about Rolexes because he actually went out to buy one recently as a very nice gift for his wife. He had been eyeing this one called the Oyster Perpetual. His wife had seen ads for it, and she really liked it, but he couldn't find one. And so I thought, oh, I'll just pop down to the local Rolex dealer to pick one mm-hmm. up. Um, so I popped down there. And of course, that's when I discovered that everything was not as it should be. <laughs> what happened? Well, the store was empty. There were no Rolex watches anywhere. Uh, right. It was almost like they'd just been held up at gunpoint. Uh, <laughs> wow. They hadn't. So I started looking around all the other Rolex dealers and all of the shop assistants told me the same thing. We don't have any Rolexes. Right. And and that just struck me as very bizarre. So, of course, I fell into a rabbit hole online. <laughs> Here's what's going on. Rolex has always had fans. 
But recently, it's become huge among people who made a lot of money on crypto. It's true that crypto's had setbacks lately, but Jeff thinks that the crypto bubble has actually led to the Rolex bubble. Rolex told me that it's a supply problem. They can't up the creation of their watches because, you know, they're, they're delicate you know, fascinating pieces of machinery. They can't just mass produce these things. And of course, it, the economy has been on fire for the last few years and there's all these crypto bros out there. So their line is that it's just a, a supply and demand situation. Yeah. And what's, what is your theory on why it's happening? Is it just that people who've gotten rich really quickly want Rolexes in particular, like these kind of nouveau riche crypto guys fixating on one object? Or is it like growing global wealth, looking for Western status symbols? Or I think it's a bit of both. And I think mm. crypto is so um, volatile and Rolexes just hold their value and appreciate in value. Yeah. Um, I think if you're um, a, a high net worth individual and, you, and you're looking to diversify your portfolio, uh, holding a collection of Rolexes is a really smart move to go along mm. with your 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 art collection and whatever else you have. So you started looking into it, um, and uh, with your sort of journalist cap on, and what did you find first? I found that there was a thriving grey market for Rolex yeah. watches. Not a black market; these aren't stolen. Right. This is legitimate, authenticated Rolexes. That you can buy for two, three, four, ten times the mm -hmm. retail price, um, but you have to go through these shady middlemen, these websites, and you know smaller jewelry stores, people in the know, friends of friends. Yeah. And I wanted to get to the bottom of it, but most importantly, I wanted to find my my wife a Rolex in time for her birthday. <laughs> Here's what Jeff was seeing specifically: individual people were selling Rolex watches online at a huge markup. Those watches had all the certifications. They had this special Rolex sticker on it that apparently is really hard to remove and it tells you if it's real or not. And they had all the paperwork that comes with authenticated watches. So what he wanted to know was, how were these dealers getting real Rolex watches? That led him to a court case in Chicago. He thinks this case is our best way of understanding how the Rolexes get diverted from the authorized market to the gray market. So in this lawsuit that's bubbling away out in Chicago, uh, three former employees of this official Rolex dealership okay. claim that there was a, a scheme going on in the store where a rogue employee was uh, buying the watches herself secretly using her own credit card and then selling them at a great profit through mm -hmm. the grey market in, in Asia. And and that to me explained why there were no Rolex watches in the, the dealership that I went into. Um, mm. And I get it. It makes perfect sense. I, I write a lot about criminal conspiracies and, and schemes and scams. If you're working in a Rolex store and you're selling watches for retail at £5,000 and you know that you could sell it tomorrow, for mm -hmm. 10,000, you're going to find a way to, um, you know, buy and sell that yourself. It, it makes complete sense. I'm not saying that's happening at every uh, Rolex dealership, mm -hmm. but it gives you a, an idea into the, the overall economic uh, picture. Jeff, can you tell us a little bit more about what you learned about the case? Sort of what was it alleging? What was happening? 
So according to this lawsuit in Chicago, um, C.D. Peacock, which is a, a really well-renowned jewellery store, um, just before the holiday sales rush in, in 2018, they, they got a new sales assistant, uh, a Chinese student um, known as Ying. And she had no experience, but she suddenly started uh, selling incredible amounts of Rolexes. Mm-hmm. Uh, they were flying out the store faster than they could get them in. Um, so the other sales assistants started to smell a rat. Okay. So it sounds like, so she's doing that. And then it sounds like the management of the store was in on it too. Is that right? Well, it seems like the owners and the management were also profiting because uh, they get uh, a commission from every sale. Uh, So there was absolutely no one that wanted to stop this from happening as long as everyone was making money, that is. You'd think it would be good for Rolex that so many people want Rolexes, but it's not. No luxury brand wants to be known for a sketchy gray market. And it's only a matter of time before what you get there aren't real Rolexes, but black market fakes. The big question for me, though, was, big picture, should we be sad about this? What's the big deal if Rolex loses its reputation? Whenever a trusted brand is threatened like this, the question I'm kind of left with is, like, what gave it value? Mm. And will this threat to its value make us rethink the value of other things or other things like it? Um, how do you think about that? That's a really deep question. <laughs> I think, you know, I'm not, I'm not a designer guy. I don't wear kind of Burberry scarves or, or mm-hmm. things with big logos on. The, the reason I was drawn to the Rolex is because it's just, it's just an awesome piece of machinery and it will mm-hmm. last forever. It's something I can hand down. And for me, we're in this fast fashion moment at the moment yeah. where everything breaks you buy trash off of the the internet you buy a toaster it breaks after a year you throw it away it becomes landfill i don't know buying these watches just made me feel like i was making a break away from that and into permanence and something that will that will last forever mm-hmm. yeah i i think as we move away from i think people there's going to be a a, a gut reaction to this landfill economy and people mm-hmm. are going to want things that last forever yeah, and so what gives that Rolex value is the fact that it will never be a thing you have to replace. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, you have to service them, which uh, I found out to my extreme cost because uh, <laughs> I had it. I had this for five years before I realized that you had to service it, and it cost me nine hundred dollars in uh, in parts. <laughs> um, so I, I, I should put that in there because before people start think that I'm some kind of uh, watch investing genius, um, yeah, I really don't know what I'm doing. <laughs> um, Jeff, what do you think is going to happen with Rolex? Well, in the months. Just before my article came out in the Financial Times, uh, Rolex announced that they would be uh, selling used secondhand authenticated Rolex watches through their official dealers, Mm -hmm. which is a move that is probably going to kill off most of the grey market because you'd much rather buy that secondhand uh, Rolex Submariner from an authorised dealer and get the warranty card and the certificate and the box rather than from some shady character in a back street in New York. Mm-hmm. Um, I think this is they've been forced into into fixing the problem, and I'm I'm pleased about that. So, what did you end up doing with, for your wife? We found we couldn't find an oyster perpetual. 
Um, mm-hmm. But we did find um, a, a, a Rolex Air King, and she fell in love with it. It's a it's a man's size, so it looked really cool on her wrist. Oh, cool! So she got something that's a bit vintage and a bit cool in it. I think it really suits her. Jeff, this was fascinating. Thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Jeff writes a lot about scams. I've linked to this piece from the FT Weekend magazine and a few other of his popular ones in the show notes. That's the show this week. Thank you for listening to FT Weekend, the podcast from the Financial Times. Next week, we are speaking with Tim Hayward. He's the FT's restaurant critic, and he's brilliant. And he's going to help us make sense of what's going on in the fine dining world now that it has been so perfectly spoofed in the film The Menu, and now that Noma, the world's top restaurant, has announced that it's closing. Don't forget our survey. It takes 10 minutes. It's in the show notes. You can win some headphones. If you want to say hi in other ways, you can also email us at ftweekendpodcast at ft.com. The show is on Twitter at FTWeekendPod, and I am on Instagram and Twitter at Lila Rapp. I post a lot about the show, behind-the-scenes stuff, culture stuff on my Instagram. I'm Lila Raptopoulos, and here is my talented team. Katya Kamkova is our senior producer. Lulu Smith is our producer. Molly Nugent is our contributing producer. Our sound engineers are Breen Turner and Sam Javinko, with original music by Metaphor Music. Topher Forges is our executive producer, and special thanks go, as always, to the wonderful Cheryl Brumley. Have a lovely weekend, and we will find each other again next week. <laughs>